for uh, multiple reasons that I'll explain in a moment. I wanted us to hear this passage uh, from the first epistle of Peter's tucked in near the back of your New Testaments. This is actually the lectionary passage, the epistle lesson from the common lectionary from last week. And it felt like a timely word from the Lord and one that I wanted you to see, so I printed it in the bulletin for you. Writes the pastor to his congregations, Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Don't fear what they fear and don't be intimidated, but in your heart sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an account of the hope that lies within you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus could read, and the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus could write. But if that portrayal is accurate, it would have made Jesus highly unusual among first century Palestinian peasants. Contemporary scholars quite confidently guess that about 3% of first century Palestinians could read. And those readers would have come overwhelmingly from the aristocracy, from government workers, lawyers, priests, and scribes, and their ilk. Literacy rates would have been vanishingly small among the carpenters and fisher folk Jesus hung out with. Which makes New Testament scholars question whether the first epistle of Peter, tucked into the back of your New Testaments, could possibly have come from the pen of Simon Peter, chief apostle and first pope. By consensus, scholars think of 1 Peter as among the most elegantly written uh, documents in the New Testament. So a fisherman who probably couldn't read and who anyway spoke Aramaic, not Greek, probably couldn't have written a minor masterpiece like this in that lordly tongue. So most scholars guess that in the ninth decade of the first Christian century, about 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, And 30 years after Peter's own martyrdom, an unknown pastor laboring quietly in a corner of the Roman Empire, perhaps one of Peter's disciples or students, temporarily, for the purpose of this letter, borrowed Simon Peter's more celebrated reputation to give his circular letter more heft and punch. Because, after all, Simon Peter is an above-the-title name, right? When Bette Midler stars in Hello, Dolly! on Broadway, her name goes above the title on the marquee. When Dwayne Johnson and Zac Efron star in a summer beach movie, their names go above the title on the movie posters. When Diane Lane stars in a rom-com, her name goes above the title. Simon Peters was the most above-the-title name in the history of the Christian church after Jesus himself and maybe his mother. And so this anonymous first century epistolarian wasn't lying exactly. <laughs> this, <laughs> Charlie's going to have his hands full. 
So this first century correspondent wasn't lying exactly. This sort of specious but innocent attribution was quite common among first century letter writers. On the other hand, on the other hand, maybe Simon Peter could have written and did write this letter. Many scholars, after all, have a hard time believing that an undereducated thespian from tiny Stratford-upon-Avon could possibly have written King Lear, right? So maybe Simon Peter went to divinity school after the resurrection, learned Greek, and shifted his profession from mackerel to ministry. In any case, with today's scripture, we're nearing the end of the first Christian century, and the feckin' seed of the gospel is scattering across the shallow soil of the pagan Roman Empire, and improbably it's taking root there and thriving, which is good news for the church. It's growing like kudzu, but it's also raising its profile, right? It's not invisible any longer. Daughter Christian church is calving off from mother Jewish synagogue, and it's getting noticed. To change the metaphor, in the early years of its existence, the baby church was hiding in the foxhole of its own Jewishness, but now at the end of the first century, it's beginning to peek its vulnerable head above the foxhole's rim in the sniper's gun sights. Rome is realizing that the baby Christian church is a force to be reckoned with. The trouble with these people is that they will not be controlled. They will not be subordinated. They will not bend the knee to the emperor. They think Emperor Domitian is a clown. Why would you ever bow down to people like Caligula or Domitian? And so whereas until now it's been unpopular to be a Christian, from now on and for 200 more years it will be, it will be illegal to be a Christian. And the articulate pastor who writes to the churches of Asia Minor at the end of the first century under the celebrated heroic name of Simon Peter has this beautiful, gentle advice for his parishioners. Do not fear what makes everyone else tremble. Don't be intimidated, but in your heart sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make a defense to anyone who demands from you an account of the hope that lies within you and do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear because it's better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. Don't be afraid of what makes everyone else tremble, says the pastor to his parishioners. In other words, if you fear God, you don't have to be afraid of anything else. FDR famously said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Well, this pastor puts a quarter spin on FDR and says, the only thing we have to fear is God, God's self. And so if you fear God, you don't have to be afraid of the emperor. If you fear God, you don't have to be afraid of the Roman cross. If you fear God, you don't have to be afraid of the Roman scaffold. If you fear God, you don't have to be afraid of the Roman Colosseum. Because this is God's world, and therefore it's a world rife with resurrection. And so your calling is to topple cheap idols from their towering plinths, and to unseat cruel despots from their imperious thrones, and to chase false gods from their shabby temples.
And do this with gentleness and reverence. Don't be all superior. Don't be self-righteous. Do it with gentleness. Just do the right thing, quietly. And I just thought this was such a timely word for us 2,000 years later because we live in a world almost as dangerous as Simon Peter's. I don't even have the vocabulary to talk about the craven infidels who explode screws and bolts out of backpacks at tween-age girls or people who execute busloads of Christians in Egypt. Even in a world of titanic malice, this passage reminds me, I have nothing to fear but God, God's self, because this world is rife with resurrection. My daughter moved to Washington, D.C. in September to teach fourth grade, and I hadn't been to visit her yet. So in the first week of May, I took a few days to go visit her to see where she lives and works. And during the week, during the day, she had to be in class, of course, and so I took myself on a self-guided tour of several Smithsonian museums. And while I was wandering around in the gift shops, I noticed that every available surface is covered up with JFK memorabilia. And so when I got home to my daughter's apartment at the end of the day, I said, Taylor, why is JFK so big in the district just now? And she gives me a disappointed look, and she says, Father, John F. Kennedy was born on May 29, 1917, so this Memorial Day tomorrow is his 100th birthday. She's a teacher, so she knows things like that. So here's a station break for a word from our sponsor. Uh, do you know that here at Kenilworth Union, we have one of the leading Kennedy experts in the country, Jim Graham. Some of you have read his beautiful book about the sailboat that was so important to Joe Jr. and Jack and Bobby and Teddy Victura. Jim has an article published by Time Magazine on Friday about JFK's old flames, the women he dated before Jackie. It's at uh, time.com. JFK at 100. And then a week from tomorrow, June 5, 7 o'clock, Colbertson Room, Jim's going to talk about uh, how, how he knows so much about the Kennedys. So join us for an hour. Okay, that's enough of the commercial. Back to the sermon. <laughs> so I got to thinking about the Kennedy legacy in America in the last 100 years. And I was sort of stunned to notice that when Joseph Kennedy Sr., Jack's father, died in 1969 at the age of 81. He had buried three of his four sons. Joe Jr. was 29 when he died. Bobby was 42, and Jack was 46. Only Teddy outlived his father. You have four sons. Imagine burying three of them. And so I was eager for a profile in Courage this week. On August 1, 1943, a dark, starless, and moonless night, Jack's torpedo boat was idling in Blackett Strait in the Solomon Islands when a Japanese torpedo, Japanese destroyer, five times bigger than his own boat, rams it broadside and cuts it in half. And so the 26-year-old lieutenant with a famously terrible back swims five hours and several miles to a nearby island 
with a strap of badly burned engineer Pappy McMahon's life jacket clenched between his teeth. And his remaining crew was lost in the Solomons for seven days with only rainwater to drink until the Navy finally rescues them. And years later, uh, when he's thinking about his medal for extremely heroic conduct, unmindful of personal danger, someone is praising his courage and Lieutenant Kennedy just brushes it off by saying, it was entirely involuntary, I assure you. I had no choice. They sank my boat. Still, I thought it was a profile in courage. Well, only a few of us get to defend the free world by piloting 80-foot speedboats with side-mounted torpedoes. We live quieter, smaller lives. Still, I'm thinking of someone like New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landro. I have no idea what Mitch Landro's religious convictions are, although the name Landro sounds thoroughly Catholic to me, don't you think? And I think maybe Mitch Landro might have heard this piece of advice from that quiet pastor in the first century. Don't fear what everyone else is afraid of. You have nothing to fear but God, God's self, and your call is to topple shabby idols from their towering plinths. And so there's Mitch Landro standing in the heart of the Confederacy, New Orleans, the place where more slaves were bought and sold than any other place in America, hundreds of thousands of human beings, just a couple of blocks away from where crews are preparing to tear down a statue of Robert E. Lee. And Mitch Landro says it's time to admit that the Confederacy was on the wrong side of humanity and that her heroes were indeed warriors but they were not patriots. They fought against the United States of America. There's a guy who does not fear what makes the rest of us tremble. Again, we're just citizens, right? We're not mayor of New Orleans. We're just neighbors. We're just friends. I love movies about high school. Do you love movies about high school? That must be true of lots of us because they keep churning them out. I think maybe movies about high school are so popular because for a lot of us, it was our coming of age. It was a time of our most intense joy and most harrowing anguish, of cherished friendships and broken hearts, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, right? Rivals, allies, cliques clubs. So I love high school movies, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Mean Girls, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, The Breakfast Club, anything by John Hughes. But probably the most provocative high school story is 13 Reasons Why, yes? 13 Reasons Why is narrated by a high school sophomore who is telling her classmates in recordings made just before her death, why she took her own life. It is brutal and explicit, and I get it if you think this is material inappropriate for young people, but I got hooked on it because I just fell in love with the male protagonist through whom we get to see Hannah's sad story. His name is Clay, and there's not much special about him, 
He's a good student, but he'll never get into Stanford. He's fairly handsome, but he's not a chick magnet. He is not athletic. He is courteous, but also socially awkward. He comes from a nice family, but they are completely useless in helping him navigate the choppy waters of adolescence. He is often articulate, but yet struck dumb in the presence of pretty girls. And after school, he sweeps popcorn off the floor at the local cinema. And he's a very flawed hero, and he can do nothing to stop Hannah's suicide. And he's even complicit in it in his own little way. But he has a keen conscience and a fully formed moral integrity that will not be undone. And so I just kept watching this guy because he was so fearless. He does not fear what his classmates are most afraid of. And what his classmates are most afraid of is each other, right? Isn't that what we fear most? getting excluded by, ostracized, mocked by our peers and our classmates, young or old alike, universally, isn't what we fear most, each other? But Clay doesn't care what his friends think. He doesn't care what the football players and the cheerleaders want. He doesn't care what his parents think or his teachers or his guidance counselor because every last one of them is hopelessly, absolutely clueless. And so Clay, fearless, is utterly free. And he teaches the rest of us how to live because he does not fear what everybody else is afraid of. It's just a tiny little profile on courage. So Memorial Day seems to me to be a sacred occasion because it forces us to stop what we're doing and to pay attention to the profiles and courage which make us free. In September, Staff Sergeant Mark D. Allen Carr finally achieved his lifelong dream of becoming a Green Beret. He's dreamed about this since he was a child of entering the Special Forces of the United States Army. And when he left for a tour of duty in Afghanistan in February, he promised his 17-year-old daughter Olivia that he would come back in May for her graduation from high school in Florida. But he was killed on April 8 in a firefight with Islamic State militants. Sergeant Carr was 37 years old and died in the 17th year of America's longest war. His sister-in-law admitted, honestly, I thought this war was over long before Mark was sent to it. And so Sergeant D. Allen Carr's daughter, Olivia, graduated from high school in Florida on Thursday, May 25. And her father could not keep his promise to be there. Instead, 80 Green Berets from Mark's unit showed up at her graduation. 80. And I love what Sergeant D. Allen Carr's 20-year-old son, Deshaun, said at his funeral. His life was not taken. It was given for his country. Yes? Nobody took their lives. They gave their lives for this country and for you and me. So many profiles and courage to honor this Memorial Day.